This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, April 5th, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellams. Ahead this hour, Dr. Joe Thompson with the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement considers the 12 years of the Affordable Care Act. And David Liebman explores the difference between being able to play music well and playing with soul. The NEA Jazz Master is in Northwest Arkansas this week, and he talked with Robert Ginsburg, host of KUAF's Shades of Jazz. Also here recently, Claire Babineau-Fontenot, the CEO of Feeding America. Claire was in Northwest Arkansas last week to visit the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, a member of Feeding America, and to meet with Walmart and Sam's Club, the two largest donors of food to Feeding America. She also came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. She says Feeding America didn't take any days off during the pandemic. We are a membership that includes 200 member food banks across the country. We um, have about 60,000 agency partners, over 2 million volunteers, and well before the pandemic, we certainly did. And to give you a sense of scale, um, in one year during the pandemic, about 60 million people turned to the the charitable food system for help. That was in 2020. 60 million. 60 million people. And our network provided 6.6% billion meals. So with that understood, it gives you context to the extraordinary partnership that we have with Walmart and Sam's Club, the largest donor of food in our whole network, the only donor that touches every single one of our members. It's Walmart. One of the the members of Feeding America is the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank. Yes, it is. Uh, which has been around for a while and is is... I mean, this area is growing, but the food bank itself is is kind of going through a growth spurt and a, a, a rehaul, a, an overhaul, right? It really is. Um, there's this initiative that they've undertaken called um, Feed Northwest Arkansas, and I'm so inspired by the work that they're doing there. Not only are they gonna, going to continue to do all the things they've already done, reaching out to communities across this uh, this region, but Feed is inspired in that it's going to provide um, an opportunity for people in the community in need of of food to actually go into this this choice pantry where they get to decide for themselves with dignity what it is that they need for their families. They get to choose the food that they need. They're going to have a beautiful, beautiful mix of healthy, nutritious foods to choose from. And it's going to be right here in Northwest Arkansas. One of the other things that they're doing that I'm really excited about is they're extending hours at feed. Because a lot of people, and this is something that I don't know that your audience knows, most, many, many of the people who turn to us for help, um, they have jobs. And what can be unfortunate is sometimes the hours of operation for a pantry can actually be right in the middle of the day while people are at work. So they're extending hours to make certain that they're touching that working class group who are struggling to make ends meet, and they know that they can be helpful in that in that regard. So I'm excited about that, too. You mentioned the pandemic, and, of course, that made a situation because so many people for some amount of time didn't have jobs or, you know, the jobs were altered. So I'm sure the last two years have been even have, – have required pantries and food banks – to step up even more. Oh, they have. They have. We have members who saw four hundred percent increase in need at the peak of that need. Still across our network, um, the majority of our members are either at 
are above pre-pandemic rates of need. So the need continues. Maybe I can give a little context for that across the country, but going into the pandemic, um, according to the USDA, who is where we get our statistics around food insecurity, and I use that term a lot, and we do in this area, but basically what that means is a person is food insecure. If they don't have a predictable, predictable access to the food that they need to build a healthy lifestyle on, right? Yeah. So do you know where your next meal is coming from? And do you know where the meal after that will come from and the meal after that? Um, it's that kind of question. So food insecurity rates in the country is something that we look at a lot. And according to the USDA, we'd been making some progress before the pandemic. Inside of that progress, 35 million people were food insecure. That's still a huge number of people. During the pandemic, I mentioned 60 million people turned to the edible food system. The maybe sliver of silver lining inside of it is because of the work that we did in partnership with communities, communities like this one. The food insecurity rates, though, are at about 38 million. Mm. So still higher, much higher than, than any of us would want. I say 35 million people not knowing where they're going to get their next meal from, not knowing how they're going to feed their kids, elders who are still having to make choices around whether they're going to get food or get prescription drugs, um, that's 35 million or 38 million too many. We're gaining on it, I think. Um, I'm inspired by the work, like the work that's being done here, but absolutely we saw significant peaks during the pandemic. We were able to meet that need because of the partnership that we have of organizations like Walmart, like Sam's Club. We need to find the food. Um, and... But it's also because of communities like this one who have stepped up in a really big way. I hope one of the messages that your, your community hears from me um, is this is a marathon, not a sprint. If at one point during the pandemic there was, for some of your members, a hundred, hundreds of percent increase, that would mean the need to have food, non-perishable food items to to provide in that need went up. Oh, was absolutely. Was that always met? It Well, it was met. Um, it was not always met. No. And I during the pandemic, um, our members never closed down. And I don't begrudge anyone who, based upon the work that they did, they had the option of working from home. None of our members did. Um, so no matter what that meant, they were out there on the front lines right here in northwest Arkansas. They would have seen those long lines um, and with people from from the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank out there on the front lines helping people, no matter what that meant, no matter what that meant. So some of the saddest, I've, I've tried my best to go out and meet people um, as they've been serving in that way across the country, nearly 100 food bank visits during the pandemic. Um, I have I have gone to nearly 100 food bank visits during the pandemic. And some of the saddest moments I've ever had professionally ever was in those moments when members knew that they could not feed that whole line, mm -hmm. knew that people that were coming to them in need of help. And, and we know that it takes a lot for people to actually summon the courage to come out and to admit that they need help. 
so many people, about 40% of the people who turned to us for help, especially at the peak, had never before turned to the charitable food system for help. So um, a lot of them that I met myself when I was out there, um, a lot of them used to volunteer at food banks, and now they found themselves inside of that line in need of help. So one of the most tragic things to see was when one of our members knew they didn't have enough food to feed that line. Um, but we did have more than we ever had before. We have seen extraordinary generosity and support from Walmart, from Sam's Club, and from so many other donors, from the American public as well. Um, I'm, I'm pleased that the need seems to be leveling off, but I also know that the need is still really great. Um, now, when I was at Walmart, and I don't know if people realize, I mentioned I'm glad to be back, but I actually used to work at Walmart, um, and I lived in northwest Arkansas. I raised my children in northwest Arkansas, and I knew that this was an extraordinarily generous community, but I always believed as well that if the American public knew some of the things that I knew, knew that tens of millions of people were struggling to have enough to eat, that if they knew that 12 million children in this country um, are food insecure, that they'd step up and they'd do something about it. And really, we have, and I'm proud of that. But then I look at math. So I mentioned I worked at Walmart. I actually used to do kind of do math at Walmart. I was executive vice president of finance and treasurer at Walmart. And there's some math that actually should work in our favor. So we are privy to some, some pretty recent data that shows that at least 66 billion pounds of perfectly edible food goes to landfills every year. That's not counting household waste. Okay. Not counting household waste. So what if instead of going to landfills, it went to fill bellies? There are some solutions right there at our fingertips. Um, our issue in the country is not a lack of generosity. We're plenty generous. Our issue in the country, it's not that we don't have enough food to feed our people. We do. Um, but there needs to be some matching um, some intentionality around it. I'm confident that because people have a much better awareness of the challenge, that we're going to take this challenge on. Um, I'm already seeing evidence that that's what we're going to do. And I'm confident about what's going to happen once we all together decide that in this country, it's not acceptable for kids to go to bed hungry or seniors to not to be able to to have to be forced um, with some of the decisions that they're forced with today, knowing that we can do something about it. Um, I think we're going to do something about it. Well, one last question about you. What led you to this role? Mm. So I'm going to try to make that a relatively short answer, uh, but it's going to start with back in 1963 um, when my mom was expecting her third child. She learned that there were these two kids in a neighboring town who were struggling with neglect and abuse. And the way the legend has it uh, is she picked up those babies and brought them home. My dad got back from work and his family had doubled. 
And then my mom and dad went on trips like that um, countless times. And over the course of their lives together, they became mom and dad to 108 children, including me. So my whole entire life, I've known that you don't have to look to distant shores to find hunger. It's right here. Even in the richest counties, and I'm from Louisiana, so the richest parishes in the whole United States, hunger is there. Um, so I've always known that. And yet I had these extraordinary opportunities to do things that no one else in my family had ever had a chance to do. My parents didn't even graduate high school, and yet I got to graduate from high school, and then I got to graduate from college, and then I went to law school, and then I went to law school again. Um, I always laugh because my mom never quite understood why did I have to go to law school two times, uh, but I have a, an advanced law degree as well. So I kept getting these great chances. and. One of my extraordinary opportunities then was then inside of my professional life. I got to be a lawyer. I worked in government. I worked in big four accounting. Um, I worked at a major law firm. Walmart was my client in big four accounting, and they were my client at that law firm. And then one day they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, um, would you ever think about moving to beautiful northwest Arkansas? And I said, yes. I had a chance to work at Walmart. I got increasing opportunities to serve. And then in 2015, I went to the doctor and I learned that I had cancer. And then everything slowed down. And then I started asking myself, you know, some of those big, deep questions. Like as, as much as I loved Walmart and Walmart had been great to me, um, what if the best thing I would ever accomplish professionally were the best thing I could ever accomplish in that role? Um, would that be okay? And my answer clearly was no. So I started leaving Walmart. When I learned that I had cancer, I knew. I, I knew how finite I was. Um, I would have been able to say that in words, but I wouldn't have felt it in the same way until I got that diagnosis. Now, my prognosis has been great from, the mo from moment one. Um, there's been no trace of cancer since my, since my very first surgery um, in 2015. Um, but on this journey, it, it just crystallized for me. All of us can do good wherever it is that we are. But I felt compelled um, that my, I want to dedicate the rest of my life to being a part of something that's bigger than me um, and to working in a space that I care so deeply about, like the space of hunger in America. So I hope it won't take the rest of my life for us to solve for hunger because it is, in fact, solvable. Um, when we put our minds to it, this extraordinary country that we all live in, when we put our minds to it, we can solve this, this challenge. Um, I'm just feeling so privileged and grateful that I get to be out here with the likes of Walmart and Sam's Club in a different way and partners like Northwest Arkansas uh, Food Bank, which uh, remind me every day in so many ways what a great decision it was that I made those years ago. Claire Babineau-Fontenot is the CEO of Feeding America. She came to KUAF last week during a visit to Northwest Arkansas. You can find out more about the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, a member of Feeding America, at nwafoodbank.org or at the agency's Facebook page. KUAF is supported by Hendricks College in Conway, 
Home of Life Launch, a new one-week residential summer program for rising high school juniors and seniors to explore career planning and experience college life. Now accepting applications for its inaugural session, which begins June 2022. More information is available at hendrix.edu slash lifelaunch. Subscriptions for Walton Arts Center's 2022-23 Broadway series are on sale now. This six-show package includes the two most recent Tony Award-winning Best Musicals, Hades Town and Moulin Rouge. Subscribers receive early access to tickets and other benefits. WaltonArtsCenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets or more information. This is Ozarks at Large. It's been 12 years since the Affordable Care Act became law. There were almost as many approaches to implementing the ACA on a state level as there are states. For Arkansas, the past 12 years has produced, first, the private option passed by the state legislature in 2013. Then the legislature passed the Adapted Arkansas Works in 2016. Then the state teamed with 19 other states to have the ACA repealed. That was in 2018. Then the Arkansas legislature passed our home to replace Arkansas Works last year. Dr. Joe Thompson, the president and CEO of Arkansas Center for Health Improvement, worked to help have the ACA pass. And we reached him last month to ask a few questions about the dozen years since that passage. He says the past two years may have been the most important of the ACA yet. I think during the pandemic, the benefits of the Affordable Care Act have really gone unrecognized. We have over 300,000 working-aged Arkansans now who have health insurance coverage that enables them to seek care and, and, and get care without financial barriers. Uh, we've also had you know, a number of issues with respect to our healthcare system. Our, our hospitals are stronger now because we don't have so many uninsured individuals and have not over the course of the past decade. Yeah, and one of the ripple effects there is, is fewer uninsured Arkansans can mean um, just better quality of health care across the state, right? When the Affordable Care Act passed, one in four working-age Arkansans, those 19 to 64, had no health insurance whatsoever. It's not that they were healthy. They were about 50% were sick and going the, to the physician, but they had no mechanism to pay for it. So it really, it was an uncompensated cost into the health care system that the Affordable Care Act enabled us to retire. Not every state approached ACA the same way. How do you think Arkansas did in the 12 years uh, since? You mentioned our home earlier. Early on, there was a lot of divisive conversation around, around whether we should or should not take the federal money to provide health insurance to lower income Arkansans. Leadership each and every year has decided to do that. And compared to our sister states around us, which have not, or only recently, They've had over 57 hospitals close, and we've only had two close, and both of those are being rebuilt. Did the Affordable Care Act influence other, th other policy matters or conversations that uh, also benefited uh, people? Congress chose to deal with coverage and not cost containment in the Affordable Care Act. So we got broader coverage. We relieved families of the financial strains. We stabilize the healthcare system, but we still need to work on moving from a fee-for-service system where we pay for things being done to people to one of value and outcomes-oriented so that we get the value and the out healthcare outcomes we want, not just the surgeries and the services provided. Finally, what can we learn 
we, society, learned in the 12 years since because you remember – I know you remember a lot of the discussions were about things that were never going to happen. There were discussions of death panels and things like that. What can we learn in a policy or critical thinking uh, manner about the debate that preceded ACA? I think it's important. Most developed countries have a strategy to ensure that their citizens have health care coverage and therefore access to health care. The Affordable Care Act gave states the option, and our state chose to do that. I think it's important for us to continue to look for ways to improve the health care system, to make sure that, you know, in our time of need, we get the highest quality, best outcome, uh, not just to have the bills paid for, but to get the outcomes that we all want to lead a healthy, productive, high-quality life. I think there are efforts underway to, to move us to a different way of paying for health care and obviously aligning the financial incentives on the healthcare system to get the outcomes we want is still a goal that has proved elusive. We must continue to work towards that because healthcare continues to cost more and more and more. And at some point, we're not going to be able to continue that trajectory. Dr. Joe Thompson is the president and CEO of Arkansas Center for Health Improvements. The dean of the University of Arkansas Clinton School of Public Service is announcing plans for the school. Dr. Victoria Francesco Soto has served in the position for about three months. In an interview with Talk Business and Politics, she said most of that time has been listening to faculty and students and adding to the school's curriculum. We're going to start two new certificate programs. So we have a, a fantastic Master's of Public Service, which, by the way, was the first in the country, but we also hear that students want to focus on data sciences, program evaluation, and get that expertise noted in their transcripts, in their in their resumes, as well as communications and leadership for social change. Soto says she plans to expand the school's work with not only local partnerships, but also with international projects. But also, given this virtual world that, you know, we have seen open up because of the pandemic, is also open up opportunities to do practicums with folks across the country. Uh, our international service project is one of the strongest suits of the school. She's also announced the return of the Clinton School Speaker Series, which had previously been stopped due to the pandemic. Soto says the series is valuable to connecting the school to the community and allow more room for partnerships with other educational institutions. Arkansas's senior Senator John Bozeman says he will not vote to confirm Supreme Court nominee Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Senator Bozeman, who is running for another term in the Senate this year, says he is concerned by the judge's judicial activism. At least three Republican senators have indicated they will vote in favor of her nomination, meaning her confirmation seems assured. Rogers Public Schools will host a Coming Out of the Darkness campus walk benefiting the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention Saturday afternoon beginning at 2. The event is free and it's open to students, faculty and families from all schools. The walk takes place at Rogers High School on Saturday afternoon. And Northwest Arkansas hospitals continue to report combined COVID-19 patient totals in the single digits. Last night, all hospitals in Benton and Washington counties combined had eight patients with the virus. The Arkansas Department of Health reports there were nine new known cases diagnosed in the most recent 24 hours of testing in the two counties. Walton Arts Center's 10 by 10 Arts Series presents the youngest Grammy Award nominee in a jazz category, Joey Alexander. The 18-year-old Indonesian piano prodigy will perform original music alongside bassist Chris Fun and drummer John Davis Thursday, April 7th. 
waltonartscenter.org or 443-5600 for tickets. This is Ozarks Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is our militant grammarian, Catherine Sherrills. Welcome back, Catherine. Hey, Kyle. Uh, did you know that I was once the mayor of LaRue, Arkansas? I didn't even know LaRue, Arkansas was incorporated. <laughs> it's not. Because <laughs> <Okay. laughs> the way to become mayor of this small, unincorporated Beaver Lake community was to re- prevail in an informal Scrabble tournament held there whenever there were enough people to play. I can tell you this. I will never be the mayor of LaRue, Arkansas. <laughs> well, I beat several good players one afternoon and served my mayoral term probably until the next weekend. But <laughs> do you, you don't play, Sam. Uh I have played in the past. Mm-hmm. Here's my problem with Scrabble. Um, I just don't have the patience for the strategy, the triple letter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just think if I use five letters, that should be worth much more than someone who uses four letters. Right. And what we're going to talk about today is two letters. Yeah, see, I, yeah. okay. <laughs> and, that, and that is the mark of um, a, a winning Scrabble player. And, and I'm not saying that I just, I'm just not good at it. It's not, it's, and it's not really about words. Right. It's about strategy. Strategy yeah, yeah. and keeping the right letter for mm-hmm, the right space. Mm-hmm. I understand. And before I start talking about the two letters words, I have to also say that I was once the Scrabble champion at the University of Mississippi. Which was one tournament, you know. But but still. (laughs) Okay, well, you may know that Scrabble skill does not rely so much on good vocabulary as it does knowing how to use high-counting tiles, as we said. In the right places. Mm -hmm, Like X, Z, and Q. Right. And the best use of those letters is in one of the 107 two-letter words listed in the official Scrabble dictionary. I would have thought it was far fewer than that. Mm -hmm. Often you can drop the high counter on a double or triple space and have it count in two words in one move, Uh, really racking up points. Okay. Fortunately, the regular rules of Scrabble do not require that one know the definition. (laughs) Oh, some people play it that sure. way. Sure, but I I won't play with them because I don't I don't care about the definition. Right. That's not it's not a word, not a vocabulary game. If and if you're unsure that your opponent has played a word that is or isn't legit, you do the challenge thing. Yeah, and most of the time when uh, I played with friends and I played years and years and years, um, we played without losing. Uh, you right, know, right. Turn for that, but I have played with the strict rule, oh, which I requires bet. you to lose yeah. the rule. Uh, so let's look at twelve of the highest scoring two-letter words in the game <sighs> of, okay. of Scrabble, provided by WordGenius.com, and see if you know their meanings. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Okay, so you're not just feeling like spending time in the kitchen tonight. So you and Laura decide to order some food to be delivered. Mm-hmm. What is a two-letter word for what you might order? Two-letter word for food that would be delivered like uh, pho has three letters. It's the most commonly delivered food. So we're not talking V8, which isn't even a two-letter <laughs> word. <laughs> no, two letters. <laughs> I want to say za, but that's not a that's word. That's it. it. That's it, a oh, word? Now, let me say. Okay. We are dealing with the official Scrabble gotcha. dictionary, okay. and there are words that aren't words. So za counts. <laughs> yes. I once won with uh, <laughs> my friend. Um, we played – I was supposed to be packing to move to Mississippi, and we played Scrabble 11 hours straight on the day I was supposed to be packing. But, 
<laughs> but anyway, one of the words that I played, it came down to the last word, and he was a little bit ahead. And all I had left was a D, as in dog. Mm-hmm. And he had played turtle. And I thought, well, I must try it. So I put a D on turtle. Turtle is, is a, a word, word yeah. yes, for so obviously means to go and gig little animals. Yes. Okay. All right. It's a fairly us- recent usage, but older than I thought. Uh, what's your first guess about when za was first used? Well, my older brother was in college in the 70s, and I think I picked it up from him. So well, sometime, yeah, yeah, that's it. Uh-huh. Merriam-Webster says in the 70s. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Kyle, most Scrabble players believe that if they draw the Q and never have a U available, they're sunk. Oh, uh, that's not right. There's a QI. Yeah, there you go. QI. I is, have no idea what it, it is. It is the one. It's defined as I can't believe you don't know this. <laughs> the vital force that in Chinese thought is inherent in all things. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's also spelled KI. Okay, but that's only worth six points okay. <laughs> versus eleven well, with the Q. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Here's a high counter you'll know for sure, Kyle. What's a good implement to have when you're trying to build a campfire? You want an axe. Yeah, that's right. It's also a good nine points for a Scrabble player. And thank you for not doing the Lizzie Borden. <laughs> lead into <laughs> oh, that. yeah, I didn't think of that. That would have been good. Um, Kyle, the two-letter X words are among the best known. Uh-huh. For instance, what's the two-letter Greek letter? With an X. Uh, not zoo. No. Chi, no. Oh. What is it? X-I. X-I, okay. I think oh. it's pronounced Zai, but okay. I'm not sure. Yeah. Sorry, fraternity friends from college. I didn't know. I didn't remember. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't know of any fraternity oh, maybe or not. anything that has an X-I. Okay. Maybe they do. Um, wh- who is a, what do you call a spouse that's no longer a spouse? An X. Right. It also means to cross out. Oh, sure, Mm -hmm. sure. And the last well-known two-letter X word is one that Paul Bunyan called babe. An ox. Ox, that's right. Um, Not so well-known is a Vietnamese monetary unit that is also a good good two-letter word. XU? XU, it is. It's equal to one-hundredth of a dong, to be exact. There you go. (laughs) Some other (laughs) high-scoring tiles are useful in two-letter words. For instance, the Y scores four. Okay. Uh, what's the possessive noun that can match with a Y for a three point for with a three pointer for a total of seven? Possessive the noun. Na- pronoun. I'm sorry. Possessive pronoun. My. Yeah. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And another two letter Y word is a preposition. By. Yes. It's also defined as a pass in certain games. Words from other languages are often accepted by the Scrabble Dictionary. uh, Kyle, do you know what Joe means, J-O? I do not. It's a Scottish term for a sweetheart or darling that comes from the 1520s. It's probably linked to the word joy. Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Finally, Kyle, a couple of words that reek with spirituality. Do you happen to know the two-letter word that means the spiritual self of a human being in the Egyptian religion? Not Ra. No. No, that that was a god. Ka. Ka. K. Also, I don't know if I've ever heard reeks with spirituality (laughs) as a phrase before. I like that. because you've not been in my (laughs) presence (laughs) when it came up. Yes. And it's related to another Egyptian word, this one from mythology. Any idea? 
Raw? Nope. Okay. We're going to keep going. I don't think RA is, a scra- is accepted okay. as Scrabble. I, it's been a while since I played, but uh, Ba. B-A? B-A. Hmm. It is the name of the eternal soul. So Scrabble players should know these words. For one thing, at least logically, they make the game go a lot slower. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine Sherald is our militant grammarian. This is Ozarks at Large. Cyrano de Bergerac has been, for more than 100 years, a constant in Western fiction. He was first enamored with the lovely Roxanne, but bashful because of his large nose, in a late 19th century play. He's been portrayed on screen by James Mason, Jose Farrar, Gerard Depardieu, Steve Martin in the 1987 film Roxanne, and most recently by Peter Dinklage in Cyrano. There have been at least five operas, a ballet, even an episode of The Brady Bunch based on the story. Before all of this, there was a real Cyrano. Writer Tracy S. Morris is familiar with Cyrano de Bergerac. She and co-author Bradley Sinor use Cyrano in the novel The Grantville Inquisitor. We asked Tracy, who lives in northwest Arkansas, to come back to the Carver Center for Public Radio last week to tell us more about the real Cyrano. His life is more interesting than even what you see in the movies. Really? So... Uh, Cyrano is, um, for some reason, he and his father don't get along. And so his father pushes him out to boarding school just as soon as he can. And then he doesn't get along with his teachers. And so he's this incredibly intelligent boy. He's a polymath. He's amazing with languages. And he doesn't get along with his teachers or his headmasters. And you see that in the writing because the stories that the the novels he writes, some of them his teachers he works into as characters, and they're not flattering portrayals. <laughs> and so he goes through school, and at 17 he leaves school and immediately falls into a debauched lifestyle on the streets of Paris. Um, contemporary biographers say that he was going to all the prostitution houses, drinking late into the night. And then he, some some biographers, his his biographer says that in an effort to re- rescue himself from that, he joins the army. He joins the army. Does he actually duel? Does he have swashbuckling? Oh yes, oh. yes, yeah. That's where the legend starts. Okay. So um, during, of course, Paris is still in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, and Cyrano joins a regiment that is mostly made up of Gascons. Gascons would be the French equivalent to the hillbilly rednecks. <laughs> and you actually see that some referred to somewhat in The Three Musketeers because the D'Artagnan character is a Gascon character. And so um, in The Three Musketeers, Gascon, uh, D'Artagnan comes to town and he immediately uh, gets fooled by some locals and tricked into giving insult to the three musketeers from the title and immediately falls into being insulted and challenging all three of them to a duel, one right after another. And so to give you some idea of the Gascon character, they tend to take offense very easily. They're very quick to duel. And Cyrano has joined these groups and he's an outsider. 
And so immediately he has to prove his bona fides. And so that's when he starts styling himself as de Bergerac because Bergerac is a region uh-huh. right next to Gascony. And so he does not actually start duels, but his favorite thing to do is to become a second in a duel. So he can still fight, and he does, but he's not fighting for his own honor. He's fighting for the honor of his friends. And there's a kind of a hierarchy in duels. You get a lot of prestige if you duel, but you get more prestige if you duel on behalf of someone else. Really? And Cyrano becomes known as this man of incredibly high honor, incredibly high integrity, who will stand up for you if he's your friend and if you don't want him as an enemy. And so in his later life, he becomes known as somebody you do not make an enemy of because he if you sit if you talk smack about Cyrano he will absolutely come after you with the sword. So he was no, he was somewhat famous in his mm-hmm. contemporary times. Well, I think it's telling after he he does not have criticism in his life. It's only after he dies that his critics start speaking ill of him. Uh-huh. It's much safer to do it there. Mm-hmm. And so he gets this reputation and he serves with his, he he serves with um, most of the information we have from Cyrano's life comes from his best friend Henry Henry Lebret and he met Henry when he was they were in school together and they went through life together they went into the army together and then after Cyrano passed away Henry became a priest but he also became Cyrano's um, the reason we know of Cyrano because Cyrano wrote quite a bit in his life, but he never published, or he only published a few works. Most of his stuff was in manuscript form that he passed around to his friends. And then once he passed away, his best friend, Henry uh, Libret, um, published his work, edited and then published his work. What's the work like? Do we know? Um, Well, quite a few things. He wrote a lot of satire. He wrote poems. He wrote plays. He's best known for a couple of works that are could be considered the earliest science fiction novels. Really? Mm-hmm. He, he wrote uh, The Other World, A Comical History of the States and Empires of the Moon, and then the follow-up novel was The States and Empires of the Sun. And in those novels, he's he describes rocket traveling to the moon in a rocket— Wow. Mm-hmm. And he's one of the first writers to to uh, write about theoretical rocket ship travel. It sounds like from those titles, he could also put in satire about mm-hmm. politics of the day. Well, uh, you know, given Cyrano's background, he had a lifelong hatred of authority figures. Mm-hmm. And so he did not like the crown. He did not like the Catholic Church. He was... Um, he was openly homosexual in a time— He was open. Open about wow. it in a time when this was illegal, and he was openly atheist in a time when that was illegal. What about other literary figures of the time? Did they interact with Cyrano? Did they respect him? Because if he's writing and— He—I don't know about at the time, but after his death, he was incredibly—his in, work was incredibly influential. Uh Moliere, the French playwright, openly plagiarized his work. Ah. There is a scene in one of Cyrano's novels where a man has been 
uh, staged his own kidnapping and is trying to get ransom money from his father to fund his uh, debauched lifestyle, and the father does not want to pay. And there's a running joke throughout the play that the father, whenever it comes time to pay, he starts to pay up, and then he pulls back at his wallet, and he says, but how did he get on the galleon? And that's, Moliere took that, and he maybe was, as a playwright, a little bit better writer than Cyrano, polished it up a lot, presented it, and it got into the um, French popular psyche that way. Okay, I got a note. The nose. Mm-hmm. Was, did, do we know? Did he have a large he nose? Did he did have a large nose. One of the few uh, existing portraits of him is in profile, and you can see the large nose. But, you know, biographers are kind of on the fence about whether he was embarrassed by it or not, because his own writing, he makes quite a few self-deprecating jokes about it. And one of his jokes made it into Roxanne. Uh, the, the joke, Steve Yeah, film. the Steve Martin film, the where Steve Martin is the scene in the bar where he's Talk. Can he do a hundred insults or whatever? Yes, yeah. can he do a hundred insults? That's probably a reference to the hundred men he dueled, but he also talks about how you'll know he's there an hour before he gets there because his nose precedes him. That's a joke that Cyrano actually wrote. I'm curious, how did you first come into to contact with Cyrano? Um, through my novel, The Grantville Inquisitor. My co-writer, uh, Brad Sinar, is a big fan of swashbuckling history. And so as we were writing the stories that ended up going into the Grantville Inquisitor, he brought in the Cyrano character. And so that was my introduction, other than seeing the movie Roxanne. Tracy S. Morris is a writer living in Northwest Arkansas. You can find out more about her and her work at TracySMorris.com. She mentioned the novel she's written with Bradley Sinor, The Grantville Inquisitor, and we're going to have her back to talk about that book on a future edition of Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. World-renowned Irish pianist Michael McHale will present a free concert Friday, April 8th at 7 p.m. at Covenant Presbyterian Church, 4511 Weddington Drive in Fayetteville. Michael is a featured soloist with orchestras worldwide, such as the London Symphony, and tours regularly with flutist Sir James Galway, 973-4500, for more information. Since 1982, the National Endowment for the Arts has annually selected a few jazz musicians as NEA jazz masters, artists who, through a career in music, have established themselves as among the very best. David Liebman was declared such in 2010. He's not just a master, but an educator. This week, he's in northwest Arkansas working with students at the U of A, and tomorrow night, he'll perform at the Roadhouse at the Momentary in Bentonville. Recently, he spoke with Robert Ginsburg, host of KUAF's Shades of Jazz. It feels nice. I mean, I'm glad I've been, you know, able to crack the circle, so to say, with the NEA Masters of Jazz. And I think I was the youngest who got it when I was 64, 65. But uh, it's nice to be recognized, and uh, I guess I'm an elder statesman, you know. That's what it, that's what it is. Well, so it's, it's nice to know that you and I share not only a love for the music, but the the people who make it. <laughs> people are great. I mean, that's what jazz is about. I think it's the people. They're, they're, they're just nicer per, per inch. <laughs> you know, the jazz is all people want to do is, you know, play their horn. That's what they're pretty simple.
Well, for people who are not that familiar with you, I want to mention some of the accolades over the years. You are an NEA Jazz Master. You uh, received the Lifetime Achievement Award. You've got an honorary doctorate. And among critics and fans, you are revered as, as one of the great artists who not only performs this music, but ensures the future of it through education. Yes, sir. Absolutely. We have a message to keep, and we have to take that's our duty as the older generation is to spread the word. You're the founder of the International Association of Schools, Schools of, of Jazz. Jazz. And part of your performance and your uh, short stay here in Northwest Arkansas will be involved in education as well. You'll be um, doing some clinics at the University of Arkansas. Jacob Herzog, uh, one of the jazz instructors over there, I guess has uh, known you for quite a while and has made this possible. He was uh, one of my better students at the Manhattan School of Music ah. for a master's degree. Well, you know, the, your legacy lives on through the, the students who you've inspired, and um, you'll be doing clinics and then uh, several performances, noteworthy, uh, The Momentary, which is a museum in Bentonville, Arkansas, just north of Fayetteville, will be presenting you in concert on April the 6th, and tickets are still available for that. Are you going to be performing with some of the people from the university? I believe so. Dave, the role of education has obviously been important to you all along, and, and I'm wondering, both of us are old enough to kind of see the evolution of how this music is taught and learned, and I'm curious about some of your thoughts about that. I've always felt like, now that it's become the pedagogy and the opportunities for students to study this music in a formal um, yes. setting is remarkable. And and yet balancing that with how you really learn how to play, I, I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. You mean between the academy and the streets? You got it. <laughs> All art forms eventually lead to the same thing, which is classification, organization, Re-examining. I mean, Marsalis did it when he came around in the 80s. Um, jazz is, has a, such a rich, rich history that's so recent. It's great material for people who want to study the music. And they can now get from A to Z. You know, they, students serious, they can definitely get the whole thing in a couple, you know, I don't know, about four years. They have to spend that kind of money, which is true in most places. But uh, that's one way of learning. But, of course, in the end, you have to take it out into the reality. I call it street. But it's... Uh, you know, the reality of playing live and of organizing music and of calling a set and playing this tune at a certain tempo and that tune at a certain key, so forth and so on. So we have the academic and then we have the real hands-on process that we all have to go through to play this music. There's so many players now that have just remarkable skills They're, in terms of virtuosity. They know their way around the instrument. This in, in many ways re relates to what we're talking about, academia and the streets. Having technical abilities is certainly an asset, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have anything to say. So Exactly. And most of the people we, that we're discussing, that population, is young. I mean, we have a terrible dichotomy, it's unfortunate, it just has to be mentioned, of going to the party but not getting in the door. We have a, an abundance of talent, best it's ever been, in my opinion, and the most varied it's ever been, that's for sure. Um, and we have absolutely very little opportunity outside, you know, outside university for one, three days. But we have very little opportunity to be able to put it out into the so-called street, um, which is economics and culture. And uh, in this day and age, with what's going on in the world, 
how important is it that you play giant steps? You know what I mean? It's uh, something that we all have to deal with. And uh, students are, you know, varying degrees of interest in solving that problem. And, you know, there was an article in the New York Times a couple of Sundays ago about where is jazz now? Where does it go? Besides the Village Vanguard and uh, Sweet Basil, Village Vanguard and Bruno Ferdinand. And it was about how it was taking place in um, apartments and uh, little meeting halls and, and especially in Brooklyn um, so you know water seeks its own level and uh, these students who are serious get out and try to it's still the feeling of the street because you do need that so that's our job our job is to give them the facts also to give them a, a feeling of what it's about I mean physical almost physical and passion feeling uh, on the scale what's important how do you teach that more ethereal component of of playing this performing this music i guess you know the kind of having something to say or or uh not just reading the words but understanding yes. the meaning behind them i didn't teach magic i mean music is an amazing thing it's in the air you can't touch it all we have is some symbolic remnants of it and uh, but music of all things i mean paintings you can touch literature you can read sculpture you can, i mean you know music is by far, the, of the seven uh, lively arts, there are uh, the most ambiguous, and especially for jazz, which is ambiguous also. So we have a double duty, a double uh, uh, responsibility to get across what we're talking about. And if you can't teach it, you can only emulate it. Um, I tell the students if they want to know what, what, what I'm about, they should stand next to me on the stage, like I did for Miles, and I did for Eldon and Chick. Um, be, be not more than quote five feet away called the five foot roll and because the physical aspect is inexplicable and you can't talk about it you can just do it and hopefully somebody gets something out of it the dichotomy between talent and a place to use it is quite wide From the CD Earth Jones, a recording led by drummer Elvin Jones, you heard Dave Liebman on soprano sax, Dave and Elvin pushing each other to further heights. We've kind of talked about some history and and, um, what has led us to where we are now. I'm curious in in regards to your career, Dave, what's in the future? Uh, Do you still have great ambitions that you'd like to fulfill or dreams of particular projects? I'm curious to hear. Well, I... I have a lot of releases. I mean, I'm, I'm a, uh, I like to get everything on tape or whatever you call it, acetate now, <laughs> you know. Um, and Project One leads to Project Two and Project Three. We, we're project, most of us are project oriented, meaning we get into something, we start to explore it, we do our research, where did it come from, we try it out, see if it works, and then we're ready to 
put it into blood on the bandstand, so to say. But uh, I could, you know, continuing that way, I've been doing for 60 years, and uh, it's been working for me pretty well, even in this time period. I mean, uh, you know, when you get up on stage, it's another world. You're putting yourself in and you, on your terms. It's your terms. Of course, you you have to pay attention to what's going on around you, but uh, when you've had a hold of the whole vocabulary and you know how to say something, you're responsibility again back to that is to spread the word when you when you see a band improvise i mean when i first saw count basie and coltrane in the 60s in birdland i mean i couldn't believe what they were doing with no music in front of them no eyes their eyes weren't open they they didn't talk to each other what the heck is this (laughs) yeah no i i I feel it man (laughs) i feel it that's something you either feel it or you don't yes you got it you got it. Well, you can train people to like it because I always say, what, what record would you give to people if they were just starting? And ballads, Coltrane. And then uh, Johnny Hartman. I mean, give them something easy to understand. And then we take them up to uh, Olay, you know, Giant Steps or whatever. You know, gotta, people you got to be eased in it. They have to have an, uh, a place to hear it and to play it. And that's our responsibility to try to find the venues, to fill the venues with people who are casually interested, which will, who can become... Very interesting. So James Brown says, if you're knocking on enough doors, one will open. David Liebman talking with Robert Ginsburg. Liebman, an NEA jazz master, spending much of the week working with University of Arkansas students. Tomorrow night, he'll perform along with the university faculty, students, and U of A Jazz Orchestra at The Momentary in Bentonville. You can find out more at themomentary.org. You can hear Robert Ginsburg on Shades of Jazz every Friday night at 10 on KUAF 91.3, every Saturday morning at 11 on KUAF 3. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith Rogers, and Hogscald Holler. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Timothy Dennis produced our show. Contributors included Roby Brock and our militant grammarian Catherine Sheralds. I'm Kyle Callums.